Ladies and gentlemen, uh, good afternoon and welcome to the uh, Rafiq Hariri Center of the Atlantic Council. My name is Fred Hoff and I'm the director of the center. This afternoon, we have an extraordinarily interesting program that attempts to answer a fundamental question. Is Islamic law, is Islamic law compatible with human rights? This is both a theological and, as we know all too well, a political question. Our panelists will wrestle with both aspects of the question. On the one hand, Islamic jurisprudence is a subject of learned controversy and argumentation. On the other hand, we have seen a variety of actors, often non-state, attempt to justify and rationalize inhumane and sometimes horrific behavior in the name of Islam. Today's discussion is part of the Hariri Center's Islamic Law and Human Rights Initiative, a program funded by the Carnegie Corporation, to which we owe great thanks. Today's program will introduce this initiative and feature a discussion concentrating on gender relations and freedom of speech. This initiative is also, in terms of the subject matter, and the person of Geneva Abdu, connected to the Atlantic Council's Hariri Center Middle East Strategy Task Force, led by former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright and ex-National Security Advisor Stephen Hadley. Geneva Abdu is a Hariri Center is a Hariri Center non-resident senior fellow. She headed up the task force's working group on religion identity, and countering violent extremism. And she heads the initiative being introduced today. The report of the Middle East Strategy Task Force will be issued on November 30th. I urge you to pay attention to it. Its findings are drawn as much, if not more, from the region as they are from the transatlantic community. And I both suspect and hope that the recommendations will help guide the United States and its partners for years to come, irrespective of tomorrow's electoral results. For those of you following on Twitter, the account is at AC Mideast with hashtag rights and Islam. That's at AC Mideast, hashtag rights and Islam. Thank you. Thank you very much for taking the time to attend uh, this important discussion. I'll now invite Geneva Abdu to introduce our distinguished guests and to moderate our discussion. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Fred. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you very much for coming to this event. Um, as I said when we were just chatting uh, a few minutes ago, I I'm, was hoping that people would find interest in a more substantive topic than the U.S. presidential election, which of course will be decided tomorrow. Um, but in any case, uh, as Fred mentioned, we've launched this initiative um, here at the Rafi Rafiq Hariri Center 
um, with very generous support from the Carnegie Corporation. And the whole idea, I guess, is to um, try to answer the question of what does Islamic law say about a lot of the uh, issues that we read about in the media. So what does Islamic law say about the treatment, for example, of religious minorities who live in predominantly Muslim societies? You know, we've read about the abuses against Yazidis. We've read about the exodus of Christians from the Arab world. So we want to try to bring some of these issues that everyone is reading about in the media into some sort of scientific and theological assessment. Um, some of the other topics that our group is, is analyzing and assessing is the whole issue of apostasy. So there's a lot of discussion now in the Arab world, and this project is focused primarily in the Arab world, um, who is an apostate and who gets to decide. Um, and so as you know from the media, a lot of these issues are being debated among Muslims. They're being debated among not only non-state actors such as ISIS and the more violent groups, but they're being debated among nonviolent Islamist groups as well. Um, they're being debated within states. So the project is also an assessment of state, of what states are doing, and sort of the violations that states are committing in the name of Islam. And Muataz, who I'll introduce in a moment, as well as Hoa, will be speaking about some of these issues and their own assessments. They're both legal scholars, their own assessments of what does Islam law say about these issues. Now, of course, the central question, I guess, that we face now, and many people have written about this, there have been a lot of theologians who have criticized ISIS. There have been a lot of theologians who have criticized um, state actors, not only non-state actors, for their violations. But then the central question becomes somewhat of a dilemma, which is that if you go and cherry pick the sources, the Islamic sources, the hadiths, and the Quran, you could find some justification, some way to legitimize both the behavior of actors, of state actors and non-state actors. So the question that we're trying to address in our project is, even if you go back and find justification for some of these atrocities, is this really the way to interpret the text in the modern world? We're living now in the 21st century. We're not living 1,400 years ago. And so that is also one of the great challenges that our group faces. And to give you just some background before I introduce our, our two speakers, um, this is a two-long project, two-year-long project. We had our first meeting in Beirut um, just in early October. Um, and our next meeting will be in Tunis. It will be a two-year project with Islamic scholars. And then the second year, we will use their findings, which will be published here at the Atlantic Council, to try to meet one-on-one -on -one with some of the people sort of carrying out these interpretations, influential players, carrying out these interpretations of Islamic law that the scholars have decided are misinterpretations, and try to have some sort of dialogue with them in private, um, states and non-state actors, to say, look, this is what we've determined. How can you now change you know, what you're uh, tweeting 24-7 with your 14 million Twitter followers? And how can you states change some of the human rights violations that you are doing in, in the name of Islam? So we hope that in this huge problem and in this huge volatile region, we will make more than just a ripple in the pond. We'll make a big difference. That's our goal anyway. 
Um, so uh, I would like to go ahead. And the other, only other point I would like to make about the project is I think that even though this is being done in, on a small scale by theologians in the region, by other Islamists in the region, what we're trying to do is present these findings in a comprehensive way by objective people. So the people that we have gathered are a team of legal scholars, um, two of whom are present here today. They're not affiliated with states and they're not affiliated with non-state actors. So they're completely objective people and they're also not activists. So we wanted to sort of take this whole discussion out of the realm of activism and place it in a much more neutral, objective context. And so that's why a team was chosen that doesn't really have a dog in this fight, if you want to put it that way. Um, so let me go ahead and introduce our two speakers. Thank you so much for coming to join us today. Um, so our first speaker is Dr. Motaz El-Figiri. He is a legal scholar, um, a graduate of SOAS in London. And he now is, he's had a long and uh, interesting experience in Egypt, should I say, um, fighting for human rights. But he also now works for Frontline Defenders, which is an organization that is very focused on human rights. Um, he will be talking generally about freedom of expression issues. And then we have Ms. Hua Ibrahim, um, who is a, a, a scholar on Sharia in particular and human rights. And she's affiliated with Harvard Divinity School. She has defended very um, uh, famous cases of women who have been stoned and who have had all sorts of human rights violations committed against them. She's a very experienced lawyer, legal scholar, and she will be talking specifically about gender issues, which is one of the subjects of our project. So um, I will start with Muataz, who will speak more generally about okay. human rights, and then we'll turn to Hua. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's great honor to be with you here. I will be very practical and just um, start by my, the main message that I want to say, or the main argument uh, of my presentation. Um, my argument is that in theory, it is possible to harmonize between Islam, Islamic law, and the human rights. Like many, any other religion, religion is, any religion is not monolithic. You have different traditions and different school. However, in practice, it all depends on the political actors, the behavior of political actors, the choices of political actors, and the structure of power. But to be also uh, very much precise, what I mean, it is possible to harmonize, because some, some may consider it apologetic argument. No, it is not apologetic. In the beginning, we need to define what we mean by Islamic law. The definition of Islamic law is not straightforward. It's not easy. The term is very contentious. The common definition of Islamic law is that it is a set of rules that are derived from Quran and Sunnah. This is the common uh, definition. However, when you engage with the literature produced by Muslim scholars, especially over the last three decades, there are significant differences between scholars on how they approach Sharia, Fiqh, Islamic law, and Islamic sources. So, this diversity of opinion on what constitutes Islamic law opens a relationship between Islam and human rights to significant contestation and, and the evolution. I can differentiate between two major um, trends in the literature on, on produced by Muslim scholars in Muslim world or in, in Western world. Uh, first one, Muslim scholars who try to find solution for the tension between Islamic law and human rights from within traditional Sharia, and I have to say that this is possible on some aspect because traditions of Sharia are very diverse 
it has been developed across centuries. You have different schools. The beginnings were like 500 schools, then you have four schools, and within each school, you have different opposing views. So those scholars try to find answers for, for this, that question or this question to expand the scope of right. However, this approach, in my view, has limitations because it failed to come into term with some issues, especially the question of gender equality, the equality between Muslim and non-Muslim, and the issue of application of Sharia, the necessity of application of Sharia as a state law. That's why there is another trend which challenged this traditional approach. I, I consider it transformative approach. And transformative approach, you have some promising scholars who have been fighting, actually, uh, since 1980s to promote such, tra such transformative approach. We have some examples of Abdullah al-Naim in, in Sudan, Nasr Hamid Abu Zaid in Egypt, Abdul Karim Surush uh, in Iran, is a movement of uh, Muslim feminists, Zeba Mir Husseini, Amna Wadud. This approach, the transformative approach, try to introduce new interpretive methods to what's called Islamic sources, the Quran and Hadith, or entirely new theological uh, perspective of Islamic sources, the, the nature of the revelation, like, for example, the work of the Iranian scholar Abdul Karim Surush, who try to promote the idea of historicism of, of Islam and the historicism of, of Sharia, uh, or trying to promote the contextual reading of Islamic sources. Um, as an example for, for, for the first traditional approach, I refer you the traditional approach, which I consider it selective, trying to find some solution from within uh, Islamic scholars. I, I refer you to a very interesting work produced by a professor at Soas, Masoud Badrin, or Mashoud Badrin, in his book, Islamic Law and the Human Rights, produced by Oxford in 2003. You will find you know, this approach and its limitations. On the other side, the transformative approach uh, raise challenges because it is not popular yet. And of course, it raises some hard issues that has not been discussed openly inside Muslim society because of the censorship. And we were speaking about freedom of speech. Uh, and because of the what's so called the blasphemy laws and the power of a religious institution like Al-Azhar or the power of Islamist movement. Going to the second part of my argument, that if it is in theory possible to harmonize What's the problem in, in political landscape? The problem is the choice of political actors and the structure of uh, powers. And here I can refer to some examples to show how this debate on Islam and human rights is very much contextualized. It is not uh, enough to study it on a theoretical level. One example is the status of women under family laws in Morocco, Tunisia, Egypt. Entirely different. Uh, polygamy is uh, restricted in Morocco banned and criminalized in Tunisia, allowed in Egypt. Three Muslim countries, they have different interpretation of the text. Another example is the behavior of Islamists in Egypt and Tunisia. Uh, and before engaging with the behavior of Islamists, I actually uh, align with scholars who differentiate between Islamism and Islam. And I can refer to the work of Bassam Tibi, a Syrian scholar who lives in, in Germany. In his book, Islam and Islamism, he makes great distinction between both Islamism is a, a more modern ideology. It's some scholars consider it reinvention of the tradition. The main tenet of Islamism is the application of Islamic law as a state law. However, Islam is a religion. Not all Muslims call for the application of Sharia, but all Islamists are necessarily they are Muslims. Uh, 
if we study the, the behavior of Islamists in Egypt and Tunisia in post-2011 uprisal, we will see the difference in, in their behavior. I published this book this year on the Muslim Brotherhood, Islamic law and human rights in the thought and practice of the Muslim Brotherhood, and my conclusion that the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt exacerbated tension between Islamic law and the human rights. And in Nahda, in Tunisia, for example, in Nahda was trying to bridge the gap between liberal and, uh, and the Islamist. It failed in some issues, but its perspective of right is much more progressive than the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Another example is the constitution-making process in Egypt and Tunisia. Uh, if you compare the provision on Sharia in the constitution 2012 written by Muslim Brotherhood or the constitution of Tunisia 2014, you will see the difference also in the articulation of right. The Tunisian constitution is expand the scope of right under Islam, while in Egypt there are a lot of tension, especially when it comes to gender equality, freedom of expression, religious freedom. Uh, another, another example, uh, the opposing views on blasphemy law. In Egypt, it's a big issue now. Uh, many reformers who call for uh, new interpretive method to Sharia, they are prosecuted uh, and charged uh, with blasphemy. Uh, Al-Azhar uh, establishment is much more uh, active in that and want to endorse such uh, criminalization of blasphemy. There are other Muslims in Egypt who oppose such an article and struggle to abolish uh, uh, this article from Egyptian law. You see also the application of blasphemy law in the, in the Gulf countries, some Gulf countries also, who censorship advocate for women's rights also on, on and, and charge them of, of blasphemy. We have some examples in, in Kuwait. Uh, so, this is what I want to say. In theory, you can harmonize. There are literature that supports that. And in practice, empirical uh, evidence suggests that it's difficult to essentialize Islam. It's, it's impossible to essentialize because the practice is different. The traditions as, uh, is very uh, vast. It's not monolithic. Uh, uh, and it's, it's, it's at the end of the day, power structure, uh, uh, behavior of political actors, determine which interpretation will dominate and which relationship between state and religion will determine. No difference between the experience of religion in Europe uh, uh, in, in Middle Ages, I mean, the, the political and socio-political forces uh, and, the, and the power structures that produced the models that we see in different countries in the West. In my conclusion, I believe that the importance of this topic, and because this is a project of, um, of the institute here, I think it, this project is, I consider it a tool for conflict resolution. The question of Islam and human rights is not just an intellectual exercise. We have seen since 2011 that the polarization across, along, along the religion was a source of violence in Egypt, in Tunisia, in Libya, in Syria. And I think it's, it's finding ways to solve this tension between <coughs> Islamic thought and Modern, modernity, human rights, secular state are, 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 are important tools to end this polarization between Muslims, non-Muslim, Islamist, secularist, and also to find a way for uh, peaceful cohabitation between different uh, uh, and diverse uh, groups in society, especially the rights of religious minority and safeguard for religious minority in the Middle East. Uh, and I think also it is a topical issue for Muslims in the West. Uh, in, in Europe, you, you follow the, the debate also on the integration of Muslims, some calls for the application of Sharia in some countries. So this issue is very relevant. It is not just an academic exercise, but it has policy implications that it's important to be taken seriously by research institute and think tank and NGOs uh, in order to find ways 
for uh, this kind of tension and to promote uh, a progressive and uh, enlightened understanding of human rights and enlightened, uh, enlightened understanding of Islamic sources among the Muslim society. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And before we go to Hoa, I just wanted to emphasize your point that the reason, one of the many reasons we're doing this project now is because post-Arab uprising, all these issues of, you know, whether Sharia, for example, is eternal or whether it's absolute, this has become a much more pressing issue now. As Muataz mentioned, we've seen Islamist parties come to power in Tunisia and Egypt and other countries. Um, so the issue of Sharia and how it should be applied in the modern world now is much more relevant than it was before when we had references in constitutions, but there wasn't the ability because of, I guess, authoritarian, officially secular states to actually raise the question of to what degree it should be the law of the land. So um, this is why, you know, this is a much more pressing topic today than it was, say, in 2010. But with that, I'll turn to Hua. I asked if I can stand up, and I was of told course. I could. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's a little bit of a cultural issue. In my culture, it's a bit rude to sit down while you guys are sitting down. Uh, <laughs> but thank you so much for coming. And I want to thank Denis for inviting me. Um, Mr. Ambassador, thank you, uh, and to Carnegie Foundation. If you don't mind, I will speak from my heart. Is that a deal? Yeah. It's from my heart to yours. So I will try to speak generally on issues that I just noted. Um, as you heard from the introduction, I'm really not a scholar. I'm just, yeah, I'm in between. Um, in my other life, I'm a lawyer. I hung out with Harvard the past eight years, uh, for the most part teaching at the Divinity School, published two books. So that is my only criteria of coming here. So I, I was hoping we could have a discussion. Um, and so I would introduce some few things and open it up for, for discussion. Um, I also want to thank Fatim and Elisa for all the organization. In 2004, I was here in Washington, D.C. as an intern at the Council on Foreign Relations. And um, I went to a meeting like this, and somebody came and is an ambassador, and I am an expert in Africa. And I was, oh, okay. Can there be an expert in a specific continent or a region or even a country, not even talk about a state? So I'm not giving you any perspective because I'm an expert in anything, but I want to tell you that um, I have, I, I became educated by accident. <coughs> I became a lawyer by accident. I guess I went to teach at Harvard by accident. At the age of 10, I was given out in marriage, <coughs> uh, and we can talk about it in another forum. Uh, so I have accidental part of my life, and I guess I'm here at the Council by Accident. It's a beautiful space. Um, over the years and the little experiences I have gathered, it has humbled me to know that as when I think I know, it is when I really want to know. And I'm sure you guys know much about it. When you think you know, uh, maybe we need to know a little bit more. In 1999, 
Nigeria introduced Sharia, the northern part of, we have 36 states. For the most part, our constitution is like the United States Constitution. So we sort of uh, tweaked the constitution and states started introducing Sharia as a state law. Uh, that was 1999. I, I, before then, I was a lawyer and I'm still one. And I came into the matter of Sharia in 1999 to defend women sentenced to die by stoning and young children sentenced to have their limbs amputated. Uh, I myself is a daughter of a mullah, uh, but that is my set of my CV, my resume in this, in this end. So for the past, two, since 1999, I have been involved with issues of Sharia. Uh, in 2009, we had the Sharia metastasizes itself a little bit into what we have now called Boko Haram. And we could talk about it in Q&A. Uh, in 2014, Boko Haram decided to kidnap some school girls, uh, over 200 of them. And I was invited by the president of Nigeria, the past president, to come and help the effort in rescuing those children. I was there for about most part of 2014. 14. In 2015, I moved on to Amman, Jordan, where I spent the year trying to work with His Royal Highness Prince Hassan bin Talal on issues of women's empowerment. And uh, I decided to write a little bit to understand what is happening with this Daesh or ISIS. And so I spent a lot of time in Irbid and in Zatari uh, trying to understand, you know, the youth, over 50% of the camp are youth and they are unemployed. Will there be a good ground for recruitment? So I was trying to understand, but much more, what are mothers, what are women doing? So I did that in 2015, and I came back, and Harvard gave me back my a bit of office at Radcliffe, where I was initially. And in 2016, I organized uh, uh, exploratory thinking meeting, where we have about people from 11 countries mostly from the Middle East, uh, to start thinking about mothers without borders. <clears throat> How do we steer youth away from violent extremism? So this is the this process. And then I got an email from Geneve saying, oh, we are doing something in the Middle East. I say, get me on, I'm on. So that is how I jump into the, uh, the issue of uh, how can we bring gender discourse into Islam and human rights? Are they really compatible? And like he rightly pointed out, I think they are. So what I did was to go back to say, but what is this human right? And I'm sure you all know about it. If we are all born equal and free, then it's compatible. <clears throat> if we are all equal before the law, then it's compatible. If we are all born with inalienable right, for freedom, a right to have to live, for speeches, all the other rights, then it is compatible. However, there are some caveats. And so this is what we are trying to see. How can we pinch into this caveat and how can we try together to find a way forward? And I'll be speaking to it uh, briefly so that we can engage. I Sharia compatible. I spoke about the inherent dignity, which is actually the bedrock of Sharia itself. 
the Sharia is equal, I mean, it has equality. And there is this issue of whether we, one can change religion. And he was trying to speak about it earlier. He was using polygamy. Now, you cannot, in Nigeria today, say you have changed your religion from a religion to another Islam to another religion is apostasy. But it doesn't exist in a man. I'm sure it doesn't exist in some of the countries that he mentioned. So there are those, those lacunas along the way that we could have a conversation as we move on to the discussion forum. So we have some of these issues hanging out there. Um, I, I wanted to speak a little bit, and I'll end up with a, with a, a case, an example of a case about two aspects of, of, of human rights that is sort of a big question mark under Sharia. And two of them is this degrading, cruel and degrading punishment, and then whether we are really equal before the law of Sharia. Okay? Now, when I started practice of Sharia, I wasn't allowed to speak in the court because I was a woman. And we can talk about it later. But are we really equal before the law? Are we equal? So this is something I wanted to discuss. But I will discuss it more in a case. Um, I asked a lot of questions when I was thinking through this process. So what Sharia are we talking about? Who interpreted that Sharia? And he spoke about the 4,000 school of thinking and the four major school of thinking in Sunni. And who is applying it to whom? Now, when, when I go back to, I am a villager. I was born and raised in the village. My work mostly is in the villages. If you discuss Sharia at the village, they will look at you, huh? What do you mean? Maybe they have never even heard of the word Sharia. When you come to the town, the conversation is different. I'm talking here, maybe there are some policy makers. When you come to the cities, the conversation is totally different. So when you think about policy, who are we addressing? Who do we want to reach with our messages? And that is why nobody can be an expert in a complicated issue such as Sharia and human rights. But we'll try to pick some few things as we move along. Who translates the Sharia? What is the perception of the Sharia? Is it specific per region, like we are now addressing the Arab region? Or is it more individual communities? Is it Sunni? Is it Shia? Is it uh, Ahmadiyya? Is it Tijaniya? Which school of thinking? Is it politics? Is it interplay of power? Is it social science? Is it misconception because we have half-baked mullahs and we have half-baked Islamic teachers and we have half-baked maybe lawyers? So is that a perception issue in terms of who is speaking to who? So these are some of the questions I was asking while we were thinking together so that in Q&A we could maybe try to flesh some of them out together. One issue I encountered as a lawyer is globalization. You see a pushback, you go to the courtroom, don't bring uh, waste into here. The globalization is creeping into our own society, so we want to push it back. And to push it back, we don't want anything uh, to do with non-Sharia. So for us, Sharia is like the, the gate, you block it out of the system. 
So is that partly globalization? Is it violation, human rights violation, conducted in the name of Islam? Do women feel disenfranchised? And one of the things I noticed in court was the judges with a big ego. So you want to argue. And the first thing is that they will look at you and the ego is so packed in the room, it has got nothing to do with Sharia. They will say the law said, or Sharia said. What Sharia? Tell me what Sharia. I was in Amman in the courtroom. And in Nigeria, you are not even allowed to speak in the court as a woman. In Amman, in Jordan, women speak in the court. But they do not have women judges. So, and they are intellectually savvy judges. Actually, the chief judge of Amman, of Jordan, has a PhD in Sharia. So we were discussing, okay, why do, what do you think about women coming to be part of judges, to be judges also, you know? But they have registered staffs that are, are, are lawyers, that they are, yeah, women, female, lawyers. And as far as he's concerned, the Sharia said, which Sharia said you cannot have female judges? We couldn't identify it, but he's an intellectually savvy person. So people just throw the words out there, and we want to equate it with human rights and Sharia. There is something that is missing. And I hope in our, as we flesh it out, we can find out what is missing in the entire spectrum. So my sojourn in the land of the prophet uh, was, for me, spiritually very satisfying, but also humbling uh, to understand that as I hear Sharia in my own part of the world, it doesn't really apply. As you may know, His Royal Highness came from the tree of the prophet. So if there is anyone that could be holier than Pope in my area, we wanted to know, having experienced this situation in Jordan and Amman where there's progressive interpretation of Sharia. And then I jumped into, the, into Saudi Arabia. So I visited Saudi Arabia a couple of times while I was in Jordan. And it's a neighbor, it's, they are divided, but they're just a neighbor, they have the same border. The total interpretation of Sharia is different. It's totally different. So what Sharia are we talking about? So I will end up by giving you an example, and then I, I will just continue into um, discussion. And I wanted to see if I could summarize what I have said in the case that I was involved with. Um, I asked other questions, but I guess maybe I'll address it in the Q&A. So some of you must have heard me maybe speak about this, but I wanted to say it to pull back a, a point home. How do we engage in issues of Sharia and human rights? How do we engage with different levels of interpretation and perception and translation? How do we, how do we engage in contextual basis, as he was saying? So in 2000 and 2002, I was involved in the case of a woman who was sentenced to stone, to stone to death. And I had a BBC person come in to interview. And somebody asked the question, is stoning to death in the Quran? And I answered the question, I do not think so. And it was played and played in the radio in the house of language, which is listened to across West Africa. 
and they said, I was anti-Islam, the mullahs, I was anti-Sharia, and that means I should also be stoned to death. And they answered me in the radio, which gives it even a bigger perception of danger for me. I called the reporter on the telephone and I said to him, I wanted to see the mullahs. And he said, you don't want to do that. It is very dangerous. And I insisted. After some time, he accepted, but he made it very clear that he would not be responsible for what happened to me. Now, the mullahs were very, very kind and generous. And they decided to see me because it took, it took a very big heart for them to want to see me. At that moment, they were saying we were just, we were just bad, not good enough for anything. So I went to see them in the mocks. They wanted to see me in a mocks. There were eight of them. It's a big mocks that we see over 2,000 people at a time. And they were sitting at the end of the mocks with long beer, old turban, big gowns. I entered, I'm not properly dressed to enter a mocks. And I'm saying this because I wanted to drop the word sensitivity as we think about human rights and Islam and how we want to see how we can change it, which I think you and I, I will suggest ways that I think we can move it forward, we have to be sensitive. So I, I moved in, I came in, I saw them sitting. I, I walked toward them. Halfway through the mocks, there was a chair by the side. And I saw the chair, but I kept moving. I was totally, totally covered. My hands, gloves, my legs, stockings, and the whole hot weather. Moving toward them, I knelt down, and I sat on the floor. And they chorus at the same time, stand up, go and sit on the chair, they said to me. In my culture, you don't look at the elders on their face, so I was looking on the ground. And I said to them, how can I Hawa Ibrahim, my name, sit on a chair when you and my fathers are sitting on a chair. How can I? They kept quiet for some time and they asked me, are you the lawyer? I said, as you please, I am. Are you Hawa? I said, as you please, I am. Oh, you have not forgotten about your culture. Mm. You have not forgotten about your religious teaching. Always looking on the floor, I said, I have not. But I said much more. Remember, I came in because I granted an interview to the BBC. I didn't say a word about the BBC interview. I told them I'm a foolish lawyer. I told them I'm a silly lawyer. I am out there trying to help this woman I'm not sure I know what I am doing. I came to them because I needed their wisdom. I came to them because I needed their knowledge. That was why I came. It was never planned. It was never thought through. But that was the culture I was brought up in. I was not a lawyer before them. I'm their daughter. You want to change policy? We want to make Sharia 
compatible a little bit more with human rights, we may need to know a little bit of some of the cultural undertones. That may not be religion. They listen to me after some time. These are people that will refuse to listen to me for months. Maybe at that time, getting nine months. We engage, they engage me. The most important thing I got from them by the time I was leaving the home was that they will not publicly be against me. They will also not publicly be against me, you know, support me publicly. They won't support me, they won't be against me. But that was the best I could have gotten. Because the moment they're against me, it means I cannot continue to do the cases. At that time, I had 47 cases. By the time I moved on, I had over 150 cases. I couldn't have done it without understanding the local dynamics and to work within it. So we want to understand how to move the policy. And Atlantic Council is doing a lot in this area. How do we bring in the unknown and the known? and the ones that we want to know. I rest. Thank you. Thank you very much to both of you. You, you eloquently laid out the problem in great detail, or problems, um, the debates, the nuances. Um, before we open it up, I just wanted to ask both of you, because as you pointed out, Muataz, and as well as Hoa, um, we're about sort of concrete results. So this isn't an academic exercise. We're hoping to make policy recommendations and we're hoping to try to influence people in the region. So from both of your experiences, and if you could just answer in maybe one or two minutes because we wanna allow the audience to ask questions and many of the ones that you've already raised, um, what, how do you propose that either people here or there can actually try to address these issues in a way that resolves conflict? Well, I think, Why don't you go first? Yeah, I think the central issue is to have inclusive dialogue between different actors. Uh, what we saw in Egypt over the past five years is that this cycle of exclusion and counter-exclusion, I call it exclusion and counter-exclusion. This is the history of the relationship between Islamists and non-Islamists in Egypt. This exclusion uh, supported repressive regime and provided legitimacy for, sub for uh, I mean, the exclusion of Islamists, of other uh, sectors in the society, legitimized repressive regime. And when repressive regime come to power, like the regime that we see right now in Egypt, it also takes justification of radicalization fight against extremism to suppress all political actors in the society. So I think the central entry is to have inclusive dialogue. And I think the key right that should be given a priority is freedom of expression. I believe that freedom of expression is very important. There will be no development in religious discourses without having religious and freedom of expression. People need to think about this, their religion freely. If, if I prioritize for Muslim society today and the situation that I see now in the Arab society, that you need to promote academic freedom, freedom of expression, that academics and the scholars who speak about religious uh, re reformation are not forced to leave the Arab countries. This is the situation now. Uh, when I left Egypt and studied in UK, I actually exposed to this kind of literature on Islamic law reformation in London, not in Cairo. 
academic institution in Cairo, faculty of law or religious institution, do not teach at all uh, this kind of uh, reformation debates. Just to teach one thing, indoctrination. Provide you like a checklist for what Sharia is, which is actually against the history of Sharia itself. Because as I said in my first presentation, Sharia was developed as man-made laws, jurist law. And it was developed actually because there was space for different schools, different philosophies to be expressed in early uh, ages of Islam. But now we see that there is one dogma supported by political power and any dissent views are excluded or forced to leave society. So I think freedom of expression is very important and inclusivity. Gradually, I think the religious discourse might find ways of reformation. It will not be, there is no immediate solution. That's why in my presentation, I mapped these different schools. I have my own preference. And my own preference is a transformative approach. Because I don't believe that we need interpretation, counter-interpretation, it's a vicious circle. But I also believe that you need this diversity of views, and gradually, it will be market of views. Gradually, they will, you know, uh, engage with each other. And the proper adequate methodology will continue. But if there is censorship, no, no, uh, no, no discussion on religious reformation. And this is very important for the fight against radicalization and extremism, which means that you need human rights, you need freedom of expression, you need democracy, which is very much intersected with religious reform. And let's not forget censorship by the state. Yeah, censorship not mainly by non-state actors well, and, and state actors. And state yes. Actors, yes, because now we see also in many countries in the Middle East where there is conflict that non-state actors also impose censorship on human rights defenders and uh, religious scholars. You see it in in, in um, Yemen, in Libya, in Syria, where religious minority are uh, violently persecuted and human rights defenders also were forced to leave uh, their countries. So. Yeah, it's, 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 politics is everywhere. You cannot separate between this debate on religion and, and politics. Thank you. Hoa, can you answer yes. in one minute? No, or do you want to just start? Okay, fantastic. Um, yes, sir, in the back. Could you please identify yourself? Uh, yes, uh, my name is Kami Bhatt. I'm with the Pakistani Spectator. And my question is that if Sharia laws are designed, are interpreted by human being, then this all argument or discussion are moot that about compatibility. And uh, given, uh, I mean, this Islamic extremism or Islamic terrorism, uh, especially in South Asian parts, that is a major part of the world where these things uh, take place, were designed in University of Nebraska and not in Pakistani Madrasa. Given for a minute that every suicidal Muslim is sponsored by Mossad or CIA, but still it's Muslim who get inspired uh, by Islam, uh, not by Judaism and Christianity. So isn't problem with Muslim rather than Islam? Thanks. Um, let's take two, three more. No, let's, at least for now, let's do it one at a time. Okay. And then if we start running out of time, we can. Okay. No, you can uh, interact if you want. Uh, <laughs> so your question is, what is the challenge? What is the problem? I wanted him to answer the question. 
I, I, can you just say it in one sentence? What's the question? So it was a comment more than a question. Exactly. Well, his question, yeah, though, is, is it, so I, if we understand you correctly, your question is, is it with, is the problem about Muslims or Islam? Is that your question? Problem or, is problem, real problem, Muslim or real problem is Islam? Because it's very yeah. difficult. Okay. Yeah. It's almost uh, impossible to dismantle Islam because yeah. it's in part of your, it's yeah. in your DNA basically. So you really cannot dismantle any religion. Uh, but I think if problem is Muslim, then we need to change uh, yes. rather yes. than, you know, criticizing Islam or yes. Christianity or Judaism. Yes. So, I mean, this is true that major uh, blame can be attributed toward West, toward Christian or Jews. You know, like uh, f uh, these Taliban, uh, their forefather used to call Mujahideen. And Mujahideen were transpired, are designed, the whole thing was designed by CIA. Because we wanted to defeat Swedish Union. <coughs> but those people who are blowing up innocent people are inspired by Islam, uh, not by Christianity and Judaism. If they are inspired by Judaism or Christianity, then you can say that oh, all these three religions are violent. And partially that is true, because if you read Old Testament, it's, you, have, you would find so many violent things that you would feel like Quran took from Old Testament. Okay, can you just please ask your question, because we want to... So who, who is to blame, Islam okay. or Muslim? Well, Thanks. It's, uh, of course Muslims. <laughs> Islam doesn't speak. I mean, it is human agency who define uh, what is religion about. But I, I, I have to say something. I mean, you, you said that international actors and how Islamist and radicalization made by... So I think these, these extremist views found root in Muslim and Arab society. I mean, the idea of Islamic State started in the beginning of 20th century. Exactly. Uh, the work of uh, Rashid Rida and Hassan al-Banna in Egypt, there was theory about that, that uh, you have two governance models. One for Islamic State, the other jahiliya, ignorance. No way. I mean, the, the struggle for Sharia state is something rooted uh, in, in, in Islamic, in Muslim society. And I think two problems here need to be confronted. One of them, the first one, is the belief that there are divine rules that need to be applied timelessly. This is a very dangerous view. We have to deconstruct this view. There is nothing divine in Islamic law. It's all religious thought. It's all human-made law, as you said. Uh, Sharia developed 100, 200 years following the death of the Prophet. It was systematized long period after the death of the Prophet. In the beginning, it was not systematized. And there, is, there are a lot of scholars who argued for that in the history of Islamic law. The second issue that we need to confront is the idea of the application of Sharia by the state, which is very dangerous because given the diversity of views that we are speaking about now, why the state will apply certain view and claim that it is Sharia. It is actually contradictory because there are different views if the state want to promote. For example, in Egypt, it took years to, until 2000, until the state claimed that woman can divorce itself, divorce herself. So before 2000, it wasn't Sharia, and after 2000, it was Sharia. So it is the state now, in the modern nation state, the state which defines legal rules. So I think there is here some kind of uh, 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 contradiction between the diversity within Sharia and the, unifer the uniform law that applied by the state. And the only solution for that, really, 
is to find some safeguards and some kind, I wouldn't say full separation between state and religion, but find some safeguard between the state and religion as believed by society. Otherwise, the state will enforce certain view of Sharia. If Islamists took power in, in Egypt, they will apply their own uh, Sharia version, and they will fight any other uh, views, and they will consider it uh, non-Muslims or uh, uh, non-pious uh, uh, Muslims. And if other uh, people came to power, they put the Muslim Brotherhood in jail because they consider their views. Because now in Egypt, for example, Al-Azhar use religion also against the Muslim Brotherhood. Takfir against the Muslim Brotherhood. So they use also religious arguments. So both actors use religious, act, uh, religious argument to com is in, in a political competition. So I think state and politics corrupt uh, religion. So this is my, my answer to challenge the, the divine the claim that rules are divine, which is not true historically. And the second one is that the state enforce certain uh, uh, religious law and consider it religious and consider it Sharia. This is very problematic given the diversity of views within Islam and within Muslim societies. Before you answer, I just want to add two nuances um, to what you said. Um, in case all of you don't know, El Azhar is sort of this, it's a mosque and university complex that's over a thousand years old that historically has been more or less an arm of the Egyptian state. Less so than the 1990s. There are a lot of diverse views within Al-Azhar. So I think that we have to keep that in mind. There are a lot of diverse views about everything, about mm. women's rights, minority rights. So it's not a monolithic institution. Mm. And I think similarly, we should keep in mind that all Islamists also don't think alike. So there are people in the Muslim Brotherhood who would be against making Sharia yes, um, yes. a part of the Constitution of Egypt. So we just have to be careful not to, to generalize about sort of institutions or movements because they're not monolithic. I wanted to add three, two, three, I just made three points on, on what has been said. The first one is I had the opportunity to read uh, the text of the three major religions. Um, the Bible, the Talmud, and then the Quran, of course, many times. And one thing I came out with, and if there's something I want you to, to remember by this discussion is this thing. These are texts. You read them, they are texts. They don't speak. The texts don't speak. We give the texts a voice. So the texts do not speak. And as the, we hear the interpretation, whether the ISIS are interpreting, I say, Allah Akbar. What is Allah Akbar? And they go and kill. God is great. If God is great. You don't kill that. So the texts do not speak. They give them voice as they want to interpret them. They mix a lot of things together. When I say half-baked, I really mean half-baked. Maybe they don't know what they know, what they are saying. So this is number one I wanted to leave. The second thing I wanted to say uh, with respect to how do we move the discourse forward, I wanted us to bring women on the, on the table. As we look at human rights and Islam and how it fits, how can the woman play a major role? And I will tell you two things how she can play a major role. The first one, all of you belong to us. You came out from our womb. So we know you. 
So we should use the power of the womb, the power of the mother, back on the table. And I'll tell you how we use it and how we've <coughs> seen it used elsewhere. The language. I have two sons. Each one has a way of the context at which you, you, you can relate to everything in with your child. Some of us are mothers, some of us are would be mothers, some of us are fathers, but the mothers have more inroad into the children. We can capture them with the language we know and we can keep them. If we want to make progress on issues of human rights in the Islamic world, is how not the mothers in the high offices, those ones in the villages that are tilting, cleaning the floor, the power inside of them you, you can hardly imagine. How can we harness it to move the discussion forward? And I'll end with the last example on how I have done it as a lawyer. So we had this woman to be, that was sentenced to die by stoning. And the only reason was that she had a child out of wedlock. So we're talking about interpretation, how we can take it and, and run with it. Now, in one school of thinking, which was one we apply in the northern Nigeria, in Maliki, you can show the woman to death for having a child out of her lock. But he also said in the text, actually what I wanted to say is I use Islam to argue Islam. Use the text to argue the text. And that's what we did. So we said, okay, Maliki also said a woman can be pregnant for a minimum of six months and a maximum of five years. It doesn't sound scientific, but that is what he said. So the lady that we were defending was divorced 11 months after she had the baby. And we coined this theory of the sleeping embryo theory. So we said, you know what? She has fallen within this gestation period of six months and five years. So who knows, the baby must have been, this embryo must have been sleeping. Within the text, we can argue the text. And so, like he was saying earlier, oh, let me sound this before I said about policy and about how we move uh, beyond now. Is that we, th we should know what we don't know and when we think we know, we should try to know more. Thank you. Red one. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Radwan Masmoudi. I'm president of the Center for the Study of Islam and Democracy. We've been dealing with these issues for 17 years, since 1999. And in fact, we organized a conference in Abuja in 2005, uh, in which 300 ulamas from all over Nigeria came for three days to talk about Sharia and democracy. Uh, my last five, six years, I've been focusing on Tunisia. And uh, we played a big role in the dialogue between Islamists and secularists. And I think that is the key to the success of the democratic transition in Tunisia versus uh, its failure elsewhere, Libya, Yemen, Egypt, and of course, Syria. Um, so dialogue between Islamists and secularists is the key to finding a compromise, a historic compromise between all the sides about how to interpret Islam uh, and democracy in their national context. And that, that's my first point and recommendation. But I'm really surprised that none of you spoke about the concept of ishtihad. 
It is a very old Islamic concept. It's not new at all. And it allows scholars to reinterpret the text constantly. And that's how Islamic civilization thrived in the first six or seven centuries, because it was flexible, it was open to interpretation, and there were hundreds and thousands of opinions and different schools of thought on anything. But for the last 300 years or so, this door, maybe even 500 years, this door of ishtihad has been closed. We haven't had any real ishtihad. And so the key now is to reopen the door of ishtihad and come up with new interpretation of Islamic text, uh, valid for the 21st century. And without reopening this door of ishtihad, you know, we're going to be stuck in very old interpretations that may not be relevant at all to our new context. So I think, again, dialogue and ishtihad are the key to modernizing our interpretations of Islam. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, unlike in other sort of discussions, um, I think that we all welcome comments. <laughs> so feel free to make a comment, even if you don't ask a question. <laughs> yes. Hello. Thank you so much for speaking. Um, my name is Amanda. I'm a research associate for the Israel Project. I've had my work in the Wall Street Journal and Los Angeles Times, um, and I'm kind of nervous. <laughs> so you spoke about the market of ideas debate. You spoke about uh, inalienable rights, and I think you mentioned freedom of press. And so that's what my question is about. Um, to put a very specific example, what would be your position on publishing pictures of the Prophet Muhammad? Um, I think that kind of puts the freedom of press, Islam, human rights debate in a specific context. Thank you. Thank you. Do you want to answer? Matas. Yes, I want to answer, but just a small uh, reaction to Mr. Radwan, okay. which is yes. very happy to meet him for the first time here in this seminar. Uh, actually, no, I, in my presentation, actually, I spoke about the selection method, but maybe because the time was a little bit short. Uh, this is one methodology that's used by many scholars, including Rajd al-Ghannoushi in Tunisia, the principle of welfare, maslaha, and takhayur, which provide a lot of Muslim jurists with um, tool to um, uh, move from one school to another, from one view to another, and try to um, activate the principle of ijtihad, or effectuate the principle of ijtihad. And we saw that many countries in the Muslim world was able to engage gradually to reform their family law by using this takhayur, uh, selection method or maslaha, welfare. And I think the example uh, made by my colleague from Nigeria, it is also the, the implementation of takhayur and, and maslaha by trying to weigh the different views and try to find solution for, uh, for some issues that human rights community may consider it a, a source of tension between Sharia and human rights, especially the question of women, like the issue of polygamy, divorce, marriage, and, and all of that. Uh, going to blasphemy, uh, it's a huge issue in the Muslim world, and the majority of Muslim jurists refuse, of course, to 
publish, you know, uh, photos for, for, or to caricature for, for profit, and also some rightly guided caliphs. But there are some different views on the right, rightly guided caliphs, because there was a, a drama in Egypt about uh, Omar ibn uh, al-Khattab, and al-Qaradawi, uh, for example, uh, permitted that in his in his juris one in his one of his view he said yes it is possible to uh, 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 to make this drama on 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 rightly guided caliphs actually al-Azhar refused so al-Qaradawi permitted that and the drama was made but it wasn't approved by al-Azhar in Egypt so it was it made outside Egypt but it broadcasted in the whole Muslim world so I just give this example to show that it's uh, developing maybe but uh, when it comes to the prophet. The consensus now in the region that it is not allowed. My view is different because also I have different uh, tradition and different perspective on, on, on Sharia and the interpretation of text. I see no problem at all for doing this uh, uh, caricatures or, some, or, 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 or photos for, for the Prophet. And in general, I think it's, it's a question of freedom of expression. I mean, um, even, even if, if the view will be somehow shocking and, and offending, it's all about freedom of expression, but, but not inciting to hatred or not incitement to violence. But if it is just like a, a view about religion, I may disagree with it, but I cannot ban it. I cannot incite against those who, who did it, you know? Uh, and I think this is a real issue because even in Egypt, um, there is a consensus among Muslim jurists that no, any uh, 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 drawing of, of, of prophet or rightly guided caliphs is, is prohibited and it caused tension. Huh? And there are cases for that we saw in, 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 uh, in Jordan, the killing of caricaturists because of that huh? uh, by, by radical or Islam militant uh, uh, group. So it, it, it is a, it's a huge issue. But I, I believe that gradually, because now, as I said, the rightly guided caliphs now there is, it was possible to, to do drama about about them to do uh, TV drama about them. So I think gradually maybe it will it will develop. Yusuf Kardawi is a very prominent Sunni theologian mm. um, associated with the Muslim Brotherhood. But I think it's fair to say that his thinking on these issues has gone back and forth. Yes. I mean he's mm. not consistent. I mean these days he says that Sharia is not eternal. It's not divine. Um, in the past, he has said something different. So I think that, you know, I mean, we have to keep in mind also that all of these people, you know, rightly so, their thinking evolves and it goes back and forth depending upon the political context to some degree. But, Hoa. Um, what can we do without the media? So the media sort of frame our life, don't we? You, you do that, don't you? Uh, you are powerful. It's also a two edged sword, isn't it? But let me say this in terms of what I have been working on. To some extent, the media is the oxygen of the extremists or the terrorists. The media is the oxygen of the terrorists. Okay, having said that, let me give you one example. When we were doing some cases back home, we had a situation where a newspaper called this day published a story saying that if, so Miss, Miss Wall was supposed to be staged in Nigeria when we were doing the Sharia cases. And of course there are pictures of beautiful bodies in, all in the papers. And so this lady said, if the prophet, may peace be upon him, have seen this, he could have married one of them. 
that was published and that cost over 500 lives. So you, there was an oxygen that was given to the extremists. Now, can we put it in the, in the box or say, okay, what is freedom of speech? And where does your freedom of speech start and end and somebody else's begins? It's a judgment call that we may have to do as some at every given context. But it's important for us to know that if each of us has the power of one to change something, I think the world is a better place when we think about human rights and the basic dignity of life and freedom. We should look at it within the bigger context, whatever reporting we are doing. But you have the judgment call. Thank you. Any other questions or comments? Yes, sir, in the back. Thank you. Assalamualaikum. Uh, in the Muslim world, there are a lot of efforts to have this conversation. And I wanted to ask you to comment on the work of Sheikh Abdullah bin Baya, and particularly his work, uh, Sheikh Abdullah bin Baya, and his, uh, his work in Marrakesh with um, calling the ulama to protect minorities. Sorry, who you mean? Abdullah? Sheikh bin Baya, fr uh, from Morocco. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. He's from Morocco, right? Um, Mauritania. 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 No, Mauritania. But it was He's called not. the Marrakesh Declaration okay. that he was. You want to? Go ahead. I, I, I didn't study his work, so I mean to be, to be clear. But there are a lot, of, a lot of examples, and I spoke about my, my expertise. I, I'm aware about the work of Abdullah Naim very well in, in Sudan and Abdikrim Sorush in Iran, and Nasr Hamid Obizit in Egypt, uh, and Muslim feminist. I give also example of Amna Wadud and Ziba Mir Hussein in Iran. Uh, so there is a lot of uh, it's diverse views, and this is an example of, you know, or an evidence of what I was speaking about, that it's, it's uh, once you open the gate of ijtihad and uh, views, I mean, you have different methods, and this is how Sharia developed, actually. Sharia developed by that in, in early centuries of Islam. Uh, there was uh, more than 500 uh, schools of law, and after that, it, it, it developed. So, uh, but you need, still, you need freedom of expression in society, because those examples that I, I gave, they are not living in the, in the Arab world. They are not living in the Muslim world, because they were persecuted. The mentor of Abdullah Naim, Mahmoud Muhammad Tahi, was executed in Sudan in the 1980s by uh, Ghaffar in Numeri. Uh, Nasser Hamid Abu Zaid, he was uh, divorced from, from his wife uh, and, uh, and considered upstate. Uh, Abdul Karim Sarouj lived here in the United States. He left uh, Iran and he's under attack in, in Iran. So it's, it's, a, it's a big issue for those reformers that they are not able to um, engage with other uh, conservative views or other uh, 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 Islamist uh, trend in, in societies engage in dialogue with them. This is what we're speaking about inclusivity. And I, I, I actually have to say, for example, that the tolerance showed by someone like Rashid Ghanoushi in Tunisia towards those uh, scholars who may disagree uh, with him, and he disagreed uh, with them, but he can accept their views, and he engage with them. And you can feel it when you read his work. When you read his work, uh, you can feel this uh, uh, that he also engage with their dialogue. But other scholars, other Muslim scholars, that should sta start by declaring them non-Muslims. This is the beginning, that there are issues that cannot be debated in Islam. For example, in, in Quran, there is what's so-called um, verses of clear text, uh, of, of, uh, of clear meaning. Uh, this text of clear meaning, 
it's not acceptable for many Muslim jurists to apply ishtihad on them. And any uh, ishtihad on these verses considered apostasy and considered uh, heresy. Uh, and that's why Nasr Hamad Abu Zayd was charged of apostasy in Egypt. Uh, so you need to come on term with freedom of expression and to have diversity, real diversity uh, in, in Muslim societies. And if we are uh, pushing, if you want to push religious reform and um, uh, toleration, which is very important right now, and we highly need it in, in our societies. Do you want to respond? Or it's can, been can suggested just, that... Just quickly, because okay, okay. we want to get more questions. Uh, it's been suggested that the um, first constitution is the Medina Declaration of the Prophet. And in that declaration, I think he was very clear about the protection of minority. So if the jurisprudence and the sunnah becomes relative, then we should use that to tout inclusion of everyone. It's everyone's fundamental human right to be born free and equal. Thank you. Um, yes, and then I'll get to you in the back, but go ahead, sir. Uh, <clears throat> yes, Tom Olson. Um, the freedom of expression idea, um, which you suggest is the way Islam is going to uh, somehow progress, um, seems not to be going forward uh, in any Islamic countries. I mean, maybe people thought that Turkey would be an example. It seems to be going in the other direction. Uh, in Egypt, actually, under Mubarak, there was probably more freedom of expression than there is now. Uh, I mean, Oman uh, probably has more freedom of expression than most Islamic countries. Um, where is this going to happen? I mean, is there, it, can you identify a place? I mean, is it going to be somewhere in, you know, Indonesia or somewhere far away from the center of the religion that this kind of uh, uh, activity is going to occur? 30 seconds. Uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's balance of power in societies. The Arab Spring opened some door, but now it's backlash in most of the country with the exception of Tunisia. So it's, 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 a, it's a balance of power. I think history still evolves. Uh, you need, I think, in, in, in my country, in Egypt, it's a question of um, having a strong liberal and leftist movement. We need to have more um, some kind of dynamism among liberal and leftist movement because you need to counterbalance. You know, what, what makes Tunisia successful is that you have a strong civil society which is independent, and you have balance of power in society. So you have Islamists, the Nahda movement, and you have other non-Islamists who are also, who have constituency. So within this balance of power, uh, actors uh, reach uh, a conclusion that they need to accept certain limit of freedom of expression. That's what happened even in Europe between different uh, views. But in other countries, the uh, political conditions are not conducive to such uh, uh, tolerant atmosphere. But, but you said uh, Asia, in Indonesia, yes, you have some examples in Asia where this uh, climate, we are speaking here about the Arab world, but it is just example of the whole Muslim, the Muslim world is larger than the Arab world. In some African countries, you may have uh, 
this kind of atmosphere, tolerant atmosphere, rather than the Arab countries. So uh, Indonesia also, you have uh, transformation among some Islamist group in Indonesia. You have Muslim scholars who produce very progressive literature. Maybe in the Arab world, we need to go outside the centrality. Of, uh, because we also sometimes consider ourselves the center of the world. But actually in Islam, when it comes to Islam, there are non-Arab Muslims who are also active in this debate. And we as Arab scholars need also to be open towards their, their thought. And I think it's a good uh, point for the project here to maybe exchange this, uh, these views between uh, Arab Muslim scholars and non-Arab Muslim scholars. And that's why we have this debate now. Uh, and, and, and we see this uh, work in Nigeria, which is very important. I give the example of uh, Professor Mashoud Badri, who also is from a Nigerian scholar who produced a great work in this field. OK, so we have one last question, because the speakers have an appointment, and we're going to have to end a bit early. Um, yes, sir, you had your hand up for a long time. Yes, my name is Todd Wiggins. Uh, my question could go to either of you, and that is uh, if you could look at generally America's human rights laws and um, legacies, if you will, or faults, what would you say in, in terms of contradiction, uh, what you would find that you're most critical of that America has been known for uh, and uh, read, perhaps suggest legislation or referendums that you would um, modify those laws with? versus what America gets right. In other words, what you think is most admirable about what goes on over here that uh, you would use as an example of uh, freedom. Hoa, do you want to answer? But one minute only. No, go about ahead. America. <laughs> it's a great country. It's a city upon the hill. And it's the light of the world in a way because you do have the power of the media. When I was researching media and I discovered that maybe there are six major people that control the media here and they metastasize themselves across the globe. So you have so much. And to whom much is given, much is expected. Uh, what did I see as an example of human rights that I've enjoyed here? English is my fifth language, and I never learned English in the, in the school. But coming here, I could, I could think strategically, so you have a space for me, and I felt free inside. And because I felt free inside of me, I'm able to be free outside. However, there are challenges. I have two children that are biracial. I've never had the conversation with them whether they are black or white. But whenever I go back to Nigeria, their father is Italian, they are but today they are they are white people. When we come back to Massachusetts, they are black. So they are totally confused who they are. Are they white or they black? But the point you are making, the point I want to make about freedom and about how what we have gotten from this country is also the difficulties that is played in and out. We could see it play in in the politics of this country. But always remember, for me, you have a power. And the world is looking down. So you are like up, and they are looking on you. And if things work out right here, it will metastasize into other countries. 
So there are issues of issues of discrimination that I felt as a mother of two. But then it has been trumped by the fact that I also have a freedom to express it, which in a lot of the countries that we work and we practice may not be necessarily so. But finally, I wanted to say that for us, for everybody sitting here, it could be one issue, one time, one day, one person. But we are all poised to change the world that you are changing already. And so let's go there, go out, get it done. Let's keep changing the world. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you to the speakers, to Ambassador Hoff, and also to Fatim, Zora, and Alyssa for organizing this event. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you.